Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today on the very first episode of the Metro podcast. My name is Jared Weintraub, and I'm the current secretary of Metro. For any non-members who might be listening out there, Metro is the Metropolitan New York Association for Applied Psychology. We were founded in 1939 as a not-for-profit professional association and are the oldest and largest local professional association of applied psychologists in the United States. We currently have over 250 members in the New York metropolitan area, and in addition to our monthly speaker series, we host a career day and other exciting events throughout the year. Our meetings begin with networking, wine and food, followed by a speaker presentation and a question and answer session. If you're not yet a member, please check us out at www.metroappsych.com. That's www.metroapppsych.com and consider joining us. We're also a completely volunteer-run organization. So if you're a member who would like to get involved, especially with helping to edit these podcasts, please reach out to us at metro.ny.app.psych at gmail.com. While we're so grateful to have some of the most influential researchers and practitioners in our field present their latest work to us each month, one of the best parts about being involved with Metro is getting to know our own members and learning about the incredible work that they do. This is exactly what we hope to accomplish with this new experiment that you're listening to today. The Metro podcast will feature interviews with members of the Metro community as a way for people to get to know other members, celebrate their accomplishments, and shine a light on the wide range of career opportunities in the field of applied psychology. This first episode will be part of a series we are calling Legends of Metro, where we interview veteran members in the field who have led exceptional careers. In thinking about who would be the inaugural interviewee, one member who immediately came to mind was Dr. Alan Kraut. Dr. Kraut is Professor Emeritus of Management at Baruch College, City University of New York, where he joined in 1989 after an impressive career with IBM Corporation. As Manager of Personnel Research Studies on IBM's corporate staff, he directed major studies of how employees balance work and family life issues. Dr. Kraut also mentioned to me outside of our interview that he published at least one professional article a year during his tenure at the organization. He has over 50 publications, and his work has been cited over 1,500 times. In 1995, he received a Distinguished Professional Contributions Award from the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, recognizing his work in advancing the usefulness of organizational surveys. Dr. Kraut earned a bachelor's degree at the City College of New York, a master's degree at Columbia University, and a PhD from the University of Michigan, where he was affiliated with the Institute for Social Research. He is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science and earned a diplomate of the American Board of Professional Psychology. On top of all of this, he is also one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Clearly with these credentials, Dr. Kraut is a legend in our field. And so without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alan Kraut. Dr. Alan Kraut, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to have you and honored. Welcome to the first episode of the Metro podcast, and especially this this exciting new series, Legends of Legends of Metro. I just introduced you a little bit and provide a little bit of background, but I'd love to hear in your own words a little bit about your journey, your professional background, um, some maybe a little bit about your your personal background as well, some hobbies, whatever you you'd like to share with us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I have to tell you that when I 
told my wife that I was being invited to speak as a legend in I.O. <laughs> mildly, she said, yeah, sure, and laughed and walked away. <laughs> oh, so at some point, I hope you'll put this in writing so you'll <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, Absolutely. I've had a long and very, uh, I should say, I don't want to use the word successful, but rewarding career. In short, I am a kid from the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx. I went to the city college. Afterwards, and I'm going to give you a short version here. Afterwards, <laughs> I joined the Army with an ROTC committee. ROTC commission and became a lieutenant in the U.S. Infantry. I spent eight months down at Fort Benning in some basic courses and then successfully completed the Airborne program and the Ranger program. I was a very proud infantry officer and it turned out to be a great two years. Got to see Japan and peacetime Korea, spent a year there, and it worked out as a moratorium on my career decision. So I had graduated college. People usually say, what are you going to be doing now? I was an officer, and I didn't have to answer that any other way for two years. Afterwards, I went back to grad school. I worked for IBM for about 30 years, retired, joined Baruch College at the City University of New York in the management department, worked there for 20 years, and then retired in about 2010, after which I taught in their international executive program, getting over to Singapore and Taiwan. That's the short version. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what were some of the ups and downs of the, these different roles that you had? Like, I guess, can you compare the different roles a little bit, what you liked and maybe could have done without or, you know, would have preferred to do with it? Always changing. Uh, at first, I went to City College of New York and eventually received a BA in Psychology plus some wonderful training in psychology itself. After the service, I came back and got a job at IBM in their HR department, which they called personnel at the time. And then in the evenings and summers, went up to Columbia. And at Columbia, I earned a master's degree in what was then called personnel psychology. So I learned a lot about testing and counseling and continue working for IBM until I realized that there was a lot more I needed to learn. At that point, I went out to Ann Arbor to the University of Michigan and enrolled in their PhD program for social psychology. It was not Iowa psychology. I came back to work for IBM and uh, that's where I first became interested in I.O. psychology. Uh, it, it's an issue that illustrates the saying that looking back, the path is clear. It's hard to foretell your future. 
looking back, you see how it happened. In my case, I went back to IBM and really just went after the problems that they asked me to help. And so when I migrated toward I.O. psychology and over time, I found that was really my true interest. That was my really my true love. That's how it first became. Uh, they have tons of interesting problems. Uh, people, including my own children, have said to me, how could you be at one company so long? Well, fortunately, I kept moving to a new job every two to three years. It was a big company, a lot of different divisions, and the problems were fascinating. One of the first problems had to do with selection, how do we select good people? And while I was working on that, I was asked to take a look at how a new kind of employee was working out. And this may sound odd to you, but back in the 60s when I started, they were first hiring African-American employees. I wound up writing a piece about my experience. It was called, and you'll love this title, When Blacks Enter Traditionally White Jobs. And it was about servicemen and uh, people who service and repair equipment and the salesman. It turned out it was a good news story that the company was doing well. Uh, new kinds of employees were working out well, although we learned that for each branch office, it was the first one that was the hardest. The first time a black employee came in, uh, the managers were very careful to give extra aid, extra help, and sensitive to any problems. The second time that branch manager hired an African-American, it was no different than hiring a white employee, which was encouraging. And we did this through a series of interviews, one-on-one. It was not the survey. Uh, I wrote that up several years later. It became an Academy of Management Journal article. Still worth reading. Um, the problems were fascinating. I wound up working on a variety of things that range from peer ratings, management assessment centers, which were first starting up then, uh, later on issues of work versus family life, and all of this was undergirded by surveys, organizational surveys, which in fact was my expertise. And I was learning and gaining from all of these other subject area issues. Were there, first was IO psychology pretty well known at that point or when you told people, you know, what you were doing in your role, uh, what was their reaction typically? Well, it was interesting. The first thing they started with was, you're a psychologist. They knew that. They didn't really understand it. Listen, my own parents didn't understand why I didn't have a private office in patients. You know, I said, it's not that kind of psychology. So the first thing that happened, my secretary started calling me Dr. Crouch. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't get them to stop that. 
uh, in any case, uh, at that point, I will say that we were known as industrial psychologists. The organizational part didn't get added until about 10 years after I entered. But that was really a worthwhile addition because a lot of our work is really organizational psychology. It's done in organizations. It requires organizational skills. Uh, but people just came to me with issues that were problems for the organization and said, can you help? Here's an interesting example. My boss comes to me and he says, Alan, I want you to read this letter. And it was a letter from a, an employee who wrote anonymously saying there's something going on in these offices. We should not be having the kind of turnover that we've got in these offices among our salesmen. And he says, can you go out there? It was Los Angeles. And I was in New York. He says, can you go out there and find out what's going on? That was the way he defined the issue. I said, fine, when would you like me to go? He said, well, how about today? <laughs> I said, I have an appointment in one of our plants today. I'll be back tomorrow. He said, okay, go then. All I got from him was a list of the people who had resigned over the last year, and that was it. And on the plane ride out there, I put together a short survey interview schedule and uh, got in touch with these folks and found out what the issue was. I just interviewed people over the telephone, but mostly in person, in odd places, bars, restaurants, wherever they could be. Came back, wrote up the report on the plane ride home. It was a great hit. They found out what the problem was. And that was the way it went for several years. Uh, I was not typecast. I was just, here's an expert in human resource problems. They come and say, can you help me? I was delighted with that. That's great. And so were you one of the only IO psychologists at IBM of the at that time? Or were, did you have mentors that um, were there to sort of help you get settled in and, and make a difference while you were there? Unfortunately, there were very few I.O. psychologists there. Um, the one who was there was a fellow named Walter McNamara, who really specialized in testing selection devices. And uh, he had one or two other people who were uh, relatively new there. So I didn't get a lot of mentorship, except from a fellow named Richard Dunnington, who was really more of an industrial relations expert. But as time went on, I got the chance within a few years to work with some super people, uh, names that we still uh, recognize and treasure, as John Hendricks and George Hollenbeck and several others, uh, Bill Dodd, who is an NYU PhD, and I worked together. It was terrific. Uh, unfortunately, I did not have as much help in the early years, but there were some good people, and over time, we sought out one another 
had some meetings, got to know how we could help one another, and that was, in fact, just terrific. It was really good. That's great. Great. Thank you. And then how did you decide to transition to, to academia, and, and what was that trans, transition like for you? Well, it was very interesting. I guess in some ways you could say I was a closet academic because uh, even in my early years at IBM, I taught as an adjunct. I taught at Queens College. I taught at Case University. Uh, let's see, I also taught at NYU, at New York University, and taught a course in survey research there. In fact, one of my best experiences was teaching with two other colleagues, and we team-taught a graduate seminar. It was a doctoral seminar, and we each did our specialty. So I was with George Hollenbeck, and he taught a lot of individual assessment, and with Joel Moses, who taught management assessment programs, and then myself teaching survey research. I got very close to those folks, and it was terrific. Uh, but in between, I did have a really good experience with Metro, enjoyed it very much. I, in fact, I was invited to join the board and become an officer. I do regret that I said no. At the time, I was working for IBM's overseas division, the World Trade Corporation, and was out of the country traveling about 12 weeks every year, which was quite a lot. I didn't think that I could do justice to Metro at that time. That, by the way, was a great experience for me because I worked with some very distinguished colleagues. One of them, who was my dotted line report, was a fellow named Gerhard Hofstetter, who developed a lot of cultural theories early on based on IBM survey data in the station in Europe. We got together and worked together. Uh, and then he left IBM and wrote up his research and it became quite a, an accomplishment, quite a big achievement and advance in our field. Very cool. I, I actually am familiar with his work. That's a very exciting connection. Yes. And uh, you you mentioned Metro, so I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your your experience with Metro. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know how long you've been a member, what it was like, you know how you first heard of it, and uh, insights about Metro over the years would be great. Well, Metro was an organization that I have always valued and always enjoyed. I've been a member probably more than 50 years. Uh, and how did I come upon it? I don't know. It was just there. And <laughs> I said, let's go to the Metro. And I said, terrific. And it's uh, been pretty much the same ever since. Uh, it, it has changed in some ways. Uh, it's different. And I would say in some ways very much for the better. Certainly. The food and drink are far better now. And I love the idea that the social hour is for the half hour afterwards, and you get to talk to people and continue afterwards if you like. 
So it's been terrific. Uh, you might say, what do you get out of it? Well, there are several things. Invariably, I get new viewpoints. The speakers have, by and large, been terrific. Uh, they bring new ideas. Uh, I know a lot of them from having lived their work, and I know many from just being long-time friends. For me, it's a great opportunity for networking, to get to know other people, find out what they're working on, uh, what's exciting, share my thoughts with them. And in a way, it's really a place to touch base that you can follow up later and say, tell me more, or where can I get a copy of that, or whatever. One of the things that you realize after some decades in the field is that the people you see again and again as colleagues actually become your friends. And I would say, in truth, many of my best friends are I.O. psychologists, and uh, Metro is a chance to see them again, find out what they're up to, exchange stories about your lives, and so on. One change that I did notice is that there are many more graduate students showing up, which, by the way, I think is terrific. And Jared, I think you get a big hurrah for the career days that you've been involved in and done that. It's just very important and very worthwhile. One thing that has gone away, though, mm -hmm. We used to have something called a Groundhog Day dinner. It was a dinner event. After COVID, we should think about doing that again. It was actually a sit-down dinner. Uh, everybody paid their own share. And we had some great speakers. For example, I remember Margaret Mead speaking. Uh, she is a world-famous anthropologist. At that time, she was at the American Museum of Natural History. She gave a delightful talk, really quite wonderful. Uh, the major thing was sometimes we reinvent the wheel in social science because we don't go back into the literature sufficiently to see what has been done. One of the other great speakers was a fellow named Arthur Jenkins. At that time, he was getting a lot of heat for his work on intelligence and ethnic group differences. He started out in a very interesting way. He said, I hope you don't mind that I'm going to read my speech because I want to be very clear on exactly what I say. Soon after he stopped talking, several people in the audience began to attack him. How could you say this and that? He said, excuse me, sir. I did not say that. Let me read what I did say. It was a very interesting experience, and I have to say that those Groundhog Day dinners were a major metro event that I enjoyed very much. Very cool. I'll definitely have to speak with the board about uh, reviving that tradition. That sounds like a really good one. Oh. 
Fantastic. Well, I'd, I'd like to switch the focus from Metro specifically to, to IO psychology at large. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your outlook for IO in the future. So um, if you could tell me what you think what you see as some of the most exciting opportunities for IO in the future, as well as some of the biggest challenges? Well, uh, in short, I would say, I wish I could be starting an IO today. It has terrific appeal. There is worlds of opportunities, all sorts of areas, and I think very exciting. I think many of the issues that we face are more or less traditional issues of how we get the right people in the right place, enjoying their work and producing well and having satisfying jobs. The challenge to us is that the world is changing from when I first started, changing every day, and the rate of change is probably faster. I came up uh, in one of my articles with the acronym of DELTA. And let me take you through the DELTA and show you where some of the changes are. The D stands for demographics. We have a very different workforce coming in. Over the years, many more women, many more immigrants, many more people of color. And all of this is undergirded by a far lower birth rate. So both birth rate means fewer workers coming in, and that it's a premium on bringing in new workers, and those are women, immigrants, people of color. I also mentioned the E is for economics. We have moved to a service economy. Part of that is people no longer have the luxury of working one company for their whole careers. People will be switching to different jobs, different careers, and coping with an economy that is not long-term, traditional, much more service jobs, much more new jobs, jobs that did not exist when I started. Believe it or not, the job category of a programmer did not exist when I was taking a master's degree. A computer programmer, one of my best received papers was, what is a programmer? I'm talking about that. There are lots of legal issues that change it in terms of who can be treated uh, in a legally protected fashion from unfair discrimination. There are laws regarding privacy. They've taken place primarily in Europe. They're coming our way. And you can imagine how privacy laws impact taking surveys and what goes on with that information. Technology is probably the biggest shift of all. Uh, people find it hard to believe that the computer used to land a man on the moon had far less power than the computer in my iPhone. It's quite incredible how far we're going. Uh, I think it's, we have to work just to keep up with the cloud. And then, of course, there are employee attitudes that have changed. Much more emphasis on balancing work and family life and the psychological contract between a company and its employees. They no longer promise you a long-term pension plan and a gold watch and leave. Those days are gone. So what are the biggest challenges for I.O. moving forward? 
I'm giving some thought. One is for us to avoid getting involved in fads, such as engagement. The engagement, it turns out, is hardly anything more than your overall satisfaction, liking your job, being clear what your goals are, what your boss expects of you, and so on. Another trap, I think, is the attraction of high-level methodology, so-called artificial intelligence. I think that is very important. We ought to be familiar with it, but I would hope that it does not take away from the attitude of making a difference where you work, of developing the OD skills so that your organization can benefit from whatever you learn and put it back into their organization. So avoiding the bright lights, being careful to focus on what are the real issues. I think that, you know, we see a very fast speed of change. It requires us as psychologists and professionals to be continually learning and to be agile in how we apply our skills. Great. That's yeah. That that's a lot of great information and, and insights as well. And in a similar fashion, what kind of advice would you give for students or young professionals who are you know getting their career started um, in the in the current climate? So you know you talked about kind of avoiding the shiny shiny objects. Maybe that's one piece of advice. But I guess more specifically for students and young professionals entering the field right now. Yes, I do, and I'll be brief because there are I have just half a dozen things that I think are really critical. Number one, during your graduate school, get practical experience. That's it. Take a shot at being an intern. Take a shot at working on a research project with your faculty. Get that practical experience. It will really be terrific for you. Related to that, second piece of advice, finish your degree, especially the PhD. Because you're going to take an internship and you're going to realize people think you're hot stuff, and you are, and they're going to love your work and say, come here forever. And you'll think, well, I'm going to be making real money and I won't have to do homework or take exams, but it is a mistake. Long term, you are so much better off getting your PhD. Next, the important thing is Hone your presentation skills. Learn how to present data well, and hopefully in an interesting way, but in a way people get. You know, as an example, I've seen a lot of people work for months on a research project, go to a meeting of PSYOP or some other session, they have 15 minutes to present their work, and they don't do a good job. That's terrible. So learn how to present your work. Sum it all up. We don't want, necessarily want to know all the details. Tell me, if you were writing up your research for an article in the New York Times, what would the headline be? In 10 or 12 words, tell me what's the headline. And so I'd say that's great advice. Next, 
develop OD skills, develop organization development know-how. How to engage your client, get them committed, work with them, help them, etc., so that your work is better received on you. After that, I would urge you to publish your work. Now, publish means to make public. Print is a terrific way to go because it's durable. So write for good journal. JAP, Personal Psychology, some other journals, Journal of Organization and Behavior. And if you can't do that, write for a journal that's more practitioner-oriented, but write. Also, speak. Don't be afraid to present your work, meetings of Metro, meetings of SIA. Uh, I think that's really key. Get your work out there. Uh, and I guess the last thing is no, just participate in whatever activity you're involved in. Actively participate. Contribute to what you're doing. You know, years ago, Woody Allen said something that's got a lot of laughs, but I realized it was very serious. Said 90% of success is just showing up. So show up, volunteer, Take part, contribute. That would be my advice to a professional, any grad student who wants to do well and enjoy yourself. Do those things. Be part of the work. Be part of the team. Be part of the solution. Great. That's some sage advice. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time, Dr. Crowd. I really, really appreciate it. Um, those are really all of the questions that I that I had for you today. But before we go, is there anything we haven't talked about so far that you'd like to mention or discuss? And then also, how can people listening get in touch with you besides, you know, when we're, when we're back in person uh, next year for Metro? Well, I, I should add that one of the things I'm really proud of is the success that my colleagues and I had with graduate interns, particularly at IBM. I'd say over the years, there were more than 100 graduate interns we had. You would probably know some of them because several went on to be presidents of SIOP. So people like Nancy Tippins and Lois Tetrick and Steve Kozlowski, so some of them, others became terrific consultants, and many are terrific academics. Uh, I always get around because I said all of them learned from their experience at IBM. Uh, some of them learned that that's not where they want to work. They want to be academics or consultants. And many went into industry jobs. So we were really quite happy that we were working with such terrific talent. We learned a lot from them because they were coming in with new ideas and so on. So I think when I look back, I'd say we did a great job. Uh, and over the years, it's been a pleasure for me to stay in touch with them and keep up. And I guess a little bit like the grandfather who take pride 
in what they have done, even if you didn't actually do it, but they did it. You, they did it, but you feel like you sort of helped them along the way. That's a terrific feeling. Anybody wants to reach me can do it. Uh, the easiest way is probably just to email me at Alan Kraut, uh, or lowercase, at AOL.com. And thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Well, Dr. Crowd, thank you so much. The pleasure is all of mine. I, I really, really appreciate it. And it's been a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much again. Okay. Have a good day and a good career. Thank you again to Dr. Alan Kraut. And thank you all for joining us today. We hope that you'll join us again next time on the Metro Podcast. <laughs>